Last week we began discussing the issues of slippery slope um, arguments where Chazal or later, later rabbinic authorities set up protective measures to protect whether it be a isur, a prohibition, or in many cases to protect people from putting their lives in danger. And we noted that when setting up protective measures, one needs to balance three factors. One is what is the danger that you're trying to prevent? How bad is it? Are we tra- talking about any sort of de, de, de oraita that warrants a love, one that warrants karate? The greater the danger, the more protective measures are worthwhile. We noted that in the case of, of uh, danger to life, chamira sakanta mi isura, we in fact are even stricter. The second factor is how likely is it that not setting up protective measures will spiral out of control and lead to that which you're actually afraid about. And the third is even if there's good reason to worry that not setting up protective measures will lead to a problem, will the cost of those protective measures make the lives of those affected unbearable to the point where it's not worth making a gzera? What I want to talk about today is how open should or must authorities be when they set up protective measures? Is it legitimate for them to blur the line between the protective measures and that which is in fact intrinsically uh, prohibited? As we've done in the last few weeks, I think it is worthwhile to take a minute and reflect on the types of protective measures that have been, uh, that have been set up by many communities and the language that has been used by them um, with the decisions made with regard to the coronavirus. Uh, So, for example, when it comes to the the closing of shuls, or at this point, um, thank God, we're at the point where at least it is plausible to think about opening shuls, and in Israel the government has given the go-ahead in many communities, though not all have returned or are beginning to return to shuls even inside, you see um, different formulations of, of why we are hesitant. Um, in some places, especially where the danger is still quite high, the argument to keep shuls closed is a direct sakana argument. There are still people who are sick in our community, there are still people who are affected, and you're putting their lives in danger. As the numbers go down, so then the language becomes more, well, we don't know, and we want to be extra cautious because chamira sakanta mi isura, sakana is such an overriding uh, principle, and we're worried that maybe, yes, if people would maintain social distancing within shul and wear masks, so then it wouldn't be problematic, but we're not sure that people will do that. Um, And that language is much more uh, protective. And I think that the language that's the most effective is the one that is is open and honest, um, which Rabbinic groups have really heroically um, 
led the communities over the last few months with this, but acknowledging the difference between cases in which we know that there's a risk imminently and cases in which we're not sure, but we're willing to, to, um, to err on the side of caution because of the value of Pikuach Nevesh, being honest about what we're doing is really important to maintain the trust of the community because at some point, if you continue to insist that there is actual danger when what you're really worried about is possible danger, people may no longer uh, believe you. Um, and therefore, constantly, the rabbis who have been involved have reformulated their language and have been very careful to, to distinguish and explain the dangers and why we're taking extra precautions and explaining why in this case extra precautions were in fact warranted. And I think just thinking about the type of, the ways that people talk about it highlights the ways in which it is important to think about how such protective measures are formulated. So I think there are basically two schools of thought in, in classic rabbinic sources. There is one school of thought who says that whenever one makes a slippery slope argument and prohibits something which is not intrinsically problematic but might lead to consequences that are problematic, one has to be open about that. One has to be very clear about that. Meaning, it's legitimate to be cautious. It's legitimate to set up protective measures, but you have to be honest that what you're worried about is a slippery slope and not claim that the action in question that you are prohibiting is itself the source of the problem. This view appears already in Avot de Rabbi Natan, in a fascinating passage, in Aleph Aleph, in Avot de Rabbi Natan, commenting on the mission that we mentioned last week of Ezuhu Siag, of Asay Siag Torah, of make offense for the Torah. Avot de Rabbi Natan says, What was the, what's a good example? So the first example of a siag was Adam HaRishon. Why? Because Hashem told him, Adam was told by God, don't eat from the Eitz Adat. But Adam tried to set up a protective measure. Lo ratza Adam arishon lomar lechava kiderach shamar lo akadosh baruch hu. He didn't want to say it the way God had told him. Elakach amar la. So he told chava mupriya eitz ashevetoch agan amara Elohim lo tochumim enu v'lo tigu ba pentimutun. He told her that God said, "Don't eat it and don't touch it." But he didn't tell her that this was a protective measure. And that gave the snake the advice and he, the idea. What did he say? He said, I can't trick Adam, but I can trick Chava. So he went to Chava. He talked to her. You think that touching it 
will make you die. Look, I'll touch it, nothing will have happen. And if you touch it, you also won't die. So what did the snake do? Right? He shook it, he touched it. And in the in Breshit Rabbah, it's slightly different. It says that he pushed her, and said, Amarla, halomitat. This is in Breshit Rabbah. Parashat Yutet in the Vilna edition. Just like you didn't die from touching, you won't die from eating it. Now, one could suggest that this Midrash, as is especially as presented in Abot de Birinatan, is, is um, hinting at the potential danger in any um, protective measure, which is it might actually overwhelm people and lead them to, to giving up. But I think if one is careful, the Midrash here is not saying that protective measures themselves have dangers, though as we noted they do have costs, but I think what the Midrash is getting at is that telling people that something is prohibited, which is what Adam did to Chava, when it's only a safeguard is dangerous because then that lie erodes trust. Because in this case, had he told her, look, don't eat, but I think it's a good idea not to touch, then if the snake had come and touched it, she would have said, look, that doesn't prove anything. Because really, you're only not supposed to eat. Not touching at best, that's that's a protective measure. But once you conflate the protective measure with the intrinsic problem, so then if you start to see the protective measure as not really problematic, you're quickly going to end up devaluing the importance of the Isser that's trying to be protected itself. I mean, you see this often in, uh, in communal debates. Where if, uh, but perhaps we should stick for the moment to the coronavirus issues, right? If, can you think about how ineffective the rhetoric would be if people said, don't go to shul, because the second you go to shul, you'll drop dead. Because then, if someone walks into shul and they don't die, or they know that's absurd on its face, no one's going to listen. But if you're careful and you say, look, we're not saying that going to shul will lead to death immediately. We're saying that we know it's possible that being in closed spaces increases spread and, and people are asymptomatic for, for up to two weeks and there are vulnerable people around in society and it's not worth even a single death for people davening. That language, at least people understand that it's protective and they can say, even though maybe for me it's not dangerous, I can take it because I, I understand the coherence of the argument. But if you were to, to try, and again, not, not saying anyone did this, but if someone had just said, if you walk into shul, there's automatically so much coronavirus in the air that you will get sick and, and end up in the hospital yourself, people wouldn't have taken it seriously. And the, and the effect in the community wouldn't have been as strong as the open and honest discussion that, in fact, uh, took place. Rav Hirsch, in Breshit Gimobet, essentially 
um, takes this understanding of this midrashic story, and he says, This is essentially the first dirabanan. And he says, what do we learn from the Avot de Rabbi Natan? That even when he set up protective measures, we cannot forget the source of these protective measures. That being careful, that's what made us do this. We have to remember they're not biblical. As long as we remember their protective measures, they'll be effective at being protective measures. But the second we start forgetting that they're protective, we start seeing them as the fundamental word of God. So then when we violate the Dirabanan by accident, we'll end up violating the biblical law too. Right? If someone thinks that, for example, waiting between milk and meat for six hours is biblical, so then if they start accidentally waiting five and a half hours, they can't handle six hours, I don't know, then they might end up cooking meat and milk together because I already can't handle this whole system. But if you realize, no, that is a minog, a protective minog, and they're different shitot, and that so many layers are removed, so then you're never going to come to the fact, maybe once in a while someone will accidentally not wait, according to his minog, between meat and milk. But the chances that a Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashmir, Jew, who normally keeps all the strictures of Basra Chalav, is ever going to accidentally cook milk and meat is so foreign, because... We have all these layers, but if we were to conflate everything and say that that was as bad as eating milk and meat, that might erode our, our commitment to the system. And reverse says, and that's what the rabbis always do, they tell you it's rabbinic. What the rabbis knew, Adam made a mistake in. He equated eating and touching. And pretended they were both biblical. The Rambam is perhaps the champion of this position and thinks that not only is this a bad idea, but it's in fact prohibited. In Perik Bet Al-Khatet of Mamrim, he writes, Why is it? How could it be that there is a prohibition to add to the Torah and yet we're allowed to have rabbinic law? And what he answers is that rabbis have the right to add protective measures as long as they make it clear that they're protective measures. But if they start pretending it's biblical, so then that is an affront to Torah because now you're trying to add to the body of the Torah. And he writes, If rabbis can add protective measures and can sometimes even suspend the Torah, what does it mean they can't add or subtract? The problem is to establish it as if it's biblical. Ketzah. The Torah says don't cook milk and meat. 
Or don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. From here we derived you can't cook or eat meat and milk. But poultry is rabbinic. So if the rabbis would come and say, you can eat milk and meat, or that would be Baltigra. And if they would say, you can't eat chicken and meat, and that's biblical, that would be Mosif. But if they say, But if the rabbis say, it's prohibited rabbinically to protect you. So it won't lead to a problem. Etc. So then, you do not violate. And he continues. So you have one school of thought that says, you cannot blur the line between protective measures and the law itself. It's both prohibited and, as reverse adds, a bad idea. However, there is another perspective that seems to emerge from Maharil. Maharil, in Minhagim, in the Likutim, Ayin, commenting on Asmachta. So most of the Rishonim think that Asmachta is when something is not, in fact, biblical, but the rabbis wanted to either provide a mnemonic so it would be easier to remember or it was poetic to attach a rabbinic law to a pasuk. In the Ridva, he claims that it's more than that, that maybe it's a law that God wanted but didn't obligate us to do and therefore the rabbis can choose to implement this law. But the Maharil is a different approach. The Maharil says that in Asmachta, Kohecha de Amar, Mitmar Midrabanan, who cross Machta Baalma, Hachi Perusho, Vada Takanta Dirabanan, who. It is Dirabanan, not like the Ritva. It's pure Dirabanan. But why did they go for it to find a Pasuk? They went and found support from Pasuk, the Samchu Divrahem Alav, and they supported their words with it, Kidei Lahachzikam, to strengthen it. So that people would be strict about it. And not treat the rabbinic words lightly. And here you seem to see an opposite approach. Where the Maharil thinks that the way to protect the protective measures is not to be open about it. And maybe people really understand the difference between Dirabanan and Deoraita, between the protective measures that are instituted to prevent the slippery slope and the problematic thing itself, but the opposite, that we want to imbue the protective measures with gravity so that people won't even violate them. And the way we do that is maybe to blur the line a little bit between Deoraita and, and Dirabanan. And it's almost as if and I'm not 100% sure of this formulation, but it's almost as if what the Rambam calls Baltosif, the Maril says is an asmachta. Right? An attempt to blur the line between rabbinic law and biblical law so that people will treat the rabbinic law as, strict, as strictly as they would the biblical law, to treat the protective measure as much with, with as much strictness as the primary law. The Rambam says that's usr, and the Maril says that's what Chazal were trying to accomplish with asmachta. These two trends 
of saying that the way to set up protective measures is through honesty and distinguishing between protective measures and the primary problem or by specifically confusing the issue was quite clear in some of the, um, the machlokot in the generations from the Chatam Sofer and afterwards um, between the um, the emerging Haredi community, the ultra-Orthodox community, um, though I don't love that, that phrase, um, and the, um, both the reform movements and the, the neo-Orthodox uh, movements uh, that existed um, at, the, at the time, the more modern movements, as, as you will. And, and this has been uh, excellently discussed by Michael Silber in his article, The Emergence of, uh, of Ultra-Orthodoxy, The Invention of a Tradition. Um, and he notes that the Khatam Sofer in certain places writes that perhaps the best way to battle the attacks on tradition was to add Chumrot and in so, and sometimes even to, to make Isurim sound more strict than they were. And the Khatam Sofer, for example, says in Chelek Aleph, Chuvasamach, of his Chuvot and Rachaim, Omnam Babanutin Rabbim Ador Parutski Vika, Virayuluk Dor Gedel Satsiag Latar Lachmir, Vilolo Siv Kula. We should always look for stringencies. And we know that the Khatam Sofer um, argues that even violating Minhagim is basically a doraita, a biblical violation against violating vows, which is a way of, of saying that, yeah, there are certain minagim, but you think they're just minagim? No, they're, they're really biblical. And some of his students, um, and the way uh, Michael Silber writes it, is several stratagems were employed. One which the Chadam Sofer sought to arrive at stringent rulings was to collapse the differences between various levels of precepts. It's good to elevate a prohibition. By this he meant to ground a stringent ruling in a new rationale, as well as to promote the prohibition to a higher level. Example, to claim that a rabbinic prohibition was actually a biblical one. Since all elements of the tradition were equally sacred, there was no point in distinguishing between its various strata. That could only lead to its its relativization. This was precisely the ploy of the reformers, who eagerly sought to differentiate between the authority of biblical precepts, rabbinical ordinances, and recent customs recorded in the Shulchan Aruch. And this became most extreme in the writings and the activities of some of his students. In 1865, a psak was issued, the psakdin of Michalovcha, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, where two rabbanim, Revil Lichtenstein, Akiva, Weisinger, uh, Akiva Schlesinger, um, Rabbi Akiva Schlesinger and, and Rabbi Hill Lichtenstein were trying to combat not just the reform but the, uh, the neo-orthodox the, um, the more modern orthodoxy of, of Germany and the like I mean they opposed some of the relatively mild changes that they made such as allowing people to dress in more modern clothes and having the drashot in the vernacular um, and the like. 
And they saw even those minor changes as the beginning of the um, as the beginning of reform. And therefore, they, they leveled their attacks against this mainstream, more modern forms of, of orthodoxy. And they claimed that not just do we think that this is a problem because it might lead to more changes, but they claimed that they were violating Isuri de Oraita and claimed that it was a violation of Chukot Akum, of following the ways of the, of the non-Jews. Um, in one place, Rav Schlesinger wrote that the way we should talk about it is that every rule in the Shulchan Aruch is equal to the Ten Commandments and every Jewish custom is equal to the Ten Commandments. Right? He, he, his language, he formulated everything as it's Doraita, it's the most important, it's the Aseret Hadibrot. And he thought that that was the way to protect the Torah, was to blur the line between Minhagim and the Rabbanus Dorite and make everything as if it was biblical, as if it was the Aserit that he brought, and that was the way to prevent people from falling into the slippery slope of reform. Some of the other students of the Chatam Sofer, um, such as the Ram Shik, felt that this was wrong. And as much as he fought against reform and also opposed some of these changes in the more modern forms of orthodoxy, he felt that it was wrong to use this type of rhetoric that blurred the line, that made everything that was maybe a violation of Minog into a biblical law. And he writes, and again quoting from Michael Silva's article, when it comes to determining the din, love truth and avoid flattery. Were these prohibitions formulated as emergency measures, Migdar Milsa, and further if he could be convinced of their efficacy, he would not be averse to lending his support. As it stood, however, the Psaktin was misleading, and Lichtenstein could not count upon his signature. And therefore you see in this, in the 19th century, the same type of machloket, whether the best way to fight these changes was to be honest and say, look, I don't like the changes because it's a slippery slope to giving up on law which was, at least in this case, the approach of the Maram Shik, or to say, no, the way to protect the Torah is to dafka, not let people relativize it by saying, this is only a minag, that's only the Rabbanon, but by, by making it that everything is Doraita and everything is the Aserat HaDibrot, those two approaches are, um, are found, not just as we saw in the Rambam and the, and the Maharil, but in fact in the, the attempt to um, to battle, as it were, the reform and the, the, what was seen as the unwanted changes in the 19th century. And it seems that this, um, this debate continues and that even in our community, there are some who choose that when there is a practice that they feel will lead to the weakening of halakha but they don't see as intrinsically problematic, will be honest about that and will say, I don't think this is Asur, but I think it might lead to something that is Asur. And therefore, I wouldn't do it. And others who will say, who, who will say, no, 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 it's Asur. And either they won't explain why it's Asur, or they will come up with halachic argumentation that might be tenuous. And you see that there are these, these two approaches.
I don't want to get political, so I won't weigh in on any of these, uh, these specific um, arguments. But I will just note that, in my opinion, um, while maybe 150, 200 years ago, I could have seen both sides of this question more clearly and said maybe the best way to prevent violation of Torah is by blurring the lines between minhagim and derabanans derabaitis, so everyone will think that everything is strict. Or being honest and open with the community and saying, look, these are protective measures, but they're necessary this time for X, Y, and Z reasons. Even if, in general, I think the majority view would follow the Rambam view, Rav Hirsch's view, to be open for both halachic and pragmatic reasons. It's unclear to me whether this is an effective method in the interconnected world that we live in now. Because now, if a rabbi comes out and says, I oppose X because I don't know what it will lead to, you can agree or disagree. But at least you know where they stand. And you can't say, no, I think it's really mutter. Because the rabbi will say, yes, I said maybe this is, per- this is permitted. I just don't think it's a good idea because it will lead to something. And then your argument is about whether it's a good or a bad idea. But if one were to take the approach of saying, you know, I think that this should be prohibited because it will lead to something more problematic. But I can't say that because people won't take it seriously. So you make a halachic argument that is not compelling we know that instantly that position will be posted online and millions of people, or maybe not millions, thousands of people will, will poke holes in that argument. And if you claim that something is usher but you can't back it up, so then what you're left with is nothing and people will, will, will ignore you entirely. At least when you're open, you have the chance of convincing people of your policy arguments. And again, coming back to the examples that we talked about from coronavirus... I think that those people who've been clear and saying, look, it's not that we're saying necessarily when you go back to shul, it will be dangerous for you immediately. But this is a protective measure because people are asymptomatic for two weeks, because you might be asymptomatic with someone else who's asymptomatic and you'll get it and you'll pass it on to someone else who's immunocompromised. By being honest, people at least can trust in the process. But if people had come out and said, the second you walk into shul, you'll drop dead, no one would have believed them from the beginning, and then people wouldn't have bought it and perhaps would have returned to shul earlier when it was even, um, even more dangerous. And therefore, I think that in general, it, the Rambam's view, Rav Hirsch's view, is the more effective one. Um, if not... If not as the Raman would have it, also the obligatory one, which is to be open and say that, yes, it's legitimate to set up protective measures, to recognize the real possibility of the slippery slope, but at the same time to recognize that that is a protective measure and not to confuse the intrinsic problem with the policy. And if rabbis have the trust of their communities because they're open, I think they would be more, that that is the more effective way in making policy decisions. Because if you present policy as policy and explain why you're doing what you're doing, 
you have a better chance at convincing people that you're a clear thinker, that you understand the situation. And if they agree with your assessment, they might even listen to you. And as we've talked about over the last few weeks, so much of PSAC is not just what you say and the PSAC you issue, but how effective is it going to be on the community. And again, my tendency is to think that in the modern period, it's much more effective to be open and hope that people trust your policy-making decisions and your assessment of reality rather than to try to confuse things in the ho- in the, because of the worry that if you're honest that something is only a minig or only dirabanan, that people will, will, will violate that unless you, you claim that it's Doraita. Again, I think that model is less likely to be effective. As we've talked about, good psak isn't just that which is a fair presentation of the sugya, but one that is most likely to convince people to follow the position that the posik thinks is correct.